So this is my uh, way seeking mind talk. And there's so many different ways that can go in terms of mind seeking way or body seeking way or way seeking body. Um, so that in itself was kind of a funny investigation. In college, I read Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. In it, they mention a book called The Russian Pilgrim. The story is about a pilgrim who searches throughout Russia for someone to teach him to pray. Finally, he's told that there's a man at the top of a mountain who knows how to pray. And so he goes to the top of the mountain and learns how to pray. And the way he's told to pray is by saying unceasingly the Jesus prayer, which is kind of parallel to me to us returning to our practice over and over again, returning to our breath, returning to who we are. That was his way seeking mind. And when he learns to pray, he's beside himself with joy. And he thinks this is all I need to do. Just like someone, some people sit to experience emptiness and then they experience emptiness or enlightenment and then everything's cool. But then a sadness comes over him and he thinks this isn't enough. So there's a second book and I have them both up there. They're now in one volume. Um, and the second book is called the, the Pilgrim Returns. And he goes back through Russia and he teaches people this magical prayer of unceasingly saying the Jesus prayer. One of my stories is that if I'm going to be a head student, I should be able to be present, to be equanimous, and basically to have my act together. As I inhabit this head student to be, being time, I realize that all I can do is to keep returning to that space of presence, equanimity, and having my act together, as we try to do when we sit. When I'm not these things, I can be thankful that I'm human. And that was kind of the meaning for me of um, the story about the man in the hut who's visited by a, the granddaughter of the old lady that what we see is that he's not human. So um, please remind me about that when I'm not being human or where I am, when I am, I guess. I had heard that I was supposed to give a Dharma talk. So I asked Peg and she said, no, a way seeking mind talk. Mensa, which is what I call my wife because she figures things out, asked me what the difference was. So I told her that a way-seeking mind talk is really a Dharma talk and a Dharma talk is not really a Dharma talk. Seeking the way is all that there is. In the end, that is what ends suffering, not the Dharma, which is empty. As it says in the grass hut poem, thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. But since this isn't a Dharma talk, I won't say anything about obstructions, except to say that all week in the intensive, as we've met with Peg and Flint, we've described our obstructions. And I saw that essentially I had created mine to keep me from wilting rather than from being a life force. 
to this day, my grandkids call me Grandpa No Fun, an endearing title, but also one that stings a little. Though I have to admit, I've had a lot of fun avoiding parties and instead making art or attending classes, I don't feel as if I'm wilting or in Peg's word, apathetic. Here's the secret I promised at morning Zazen. For those who weren't there, I said I would give a, uh, whatever it's called, a spoil alert, a spoiler. The staples in this picture are made by the same stapler I used as a kid making gift boxes from hosiery boxes in my father's store. The images are derived from a Victoria's Secret catalog that was sent to my sister, Dale. I still get her mail. The grid is my present world, seeing all of you on my screen in Zoom. My mother had a lingerie store in Chicago at Wabash and Adams when I was in high school. It was a front. What she really did was in the changing room, she'd give psychotherapy to the Chicago Loop office girls she was fitting. I'm going to try to describe my way-seeking mind. Two years ago, I gave more of a linear progression, way-seeking mind talk. Now it seems scrambled, but not any more confused and hopefully more focused. So it was eggs sunny side up. Now it is one egg scrambled. Even the inside and the outside are not separated. This is Senge's picture of the universe done about 200 years ago. He was a Japanese monk in the Rinzai school. It represents to me my way-seeking mind. One day I was meditating and suddenly I realized that it was my body that was sitting on the cushion, not my mind. Notice how it is. The triangle, the body that sits with three points touching the zabaton. My triangle overlaps my mind, the circle. Together we face the rectangle representing our original self, our Buddha nature, my body touches the rectangle. And that was, that was strange because um, it seems at first that it's overlapping and in front of the rectangle. But then I looked, um, when I blew it up, and I don't know if you can see it, but the part that's overlapping the rectangle has kind of, uh, in the wetness of the ink, has spread out into it. So I really like seeing that. Another time I noticed my shadow on the wall when I was sitting. Was that always there? I thought I was facing my shadow. My life in photography sees shadows. Equal to physical objects. They aren't very substantial in the physical world. We might discount them, but in a photograph they are integral. I somehow thought after reading Burton Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian, that only physical objects exist and therefore we can dismiss God and so many other things like shadows that we can't put on a scale or hold in our hands. 
this was the biggest spiritual mistake of my life, that there are things and the rest of, and the rest is make believe. As a kid, I had no imagination. I took home study courses in how to organize your time and how to remember names and faces. None of it sunk in, but I tried. My friends would play cowboys and Indians, shoot each other, and then fall down dead. It made no sense to me. I remember where I was standing, looking up at them on a hill and watching them die. And yet, I see now that I was just watching me watching them. They grew up with television. We didn't have a TV until high school. And when we did, my parents put it in their bedroom. Books and discussion ruled in our house. I could barely read and couldn't talk, but I loved math and taking things apart. But there was one illustrated book that kept coming back to me, The Black Girl in Search of God. And it had beautiful illustrations that seem um, impressed in my mind that I always um, kind of go to. It is this search for that, which is beyond the obvious that has become the main focus in my life. And now it is becoming the obvious. This isn't Socrates, by the way, this is my dad. Socrates was looking forward to his death because he said that he would be able to see things clearly because his body would not interfere. Learning this in college confirmed that I didn't need to feel things. Rather, I could just figure them out. I could go on in life from one rationalization to the next. I could justify anything and I got pretty good at it. My dad had been a lawyer and before that was on the University of Chicago debate team. He could take any side of an argument and win me over. Once when I was much younger, my friends and I were throwing rocks and I hit Rodney. I brought the kids back to my room and we made a list of 20 reasons why we were justified throwing rocks at poor Rodney. Sometimes I Google Rodney to tell him how sorry I am, but I cannot find him. The mind is not our savior in Zen as it was for Socrates, for it creates delusions, yet without it, we'd be lost. I canceled my lobotomy appointment for tomorrow. The most common complaint of the meditator is that our brain is always working, almost as if it is Mara keeping us from feeling the pain that Rodney felt when the rock hit his face. My parents were so worried about my mind at least that's my story. Because I had a speech problem and was in a highly competitive school, my parents were so anxious that I make it through school. After starting out college on probation, I got some sleeping pills from a Japanese roommate so that if I flunked out of college, I could end my life right there. I couldn't imagine a life without a college degree. Finally, I saw that I could graduate and I flushed the toilets, the pills down the toilet. Notice that the triangle body and the circle mind are overlapping. I aim to be in that small but vast hut of the overlap. It is the corner that sits, qu quietly sits and collects dirt. 
Mensa and I don't share my love for dirt, except when it is in the garden. She wants me to call it something else. Maybe dirt is our shadow side that is so much who we are despite our protests and also for, despite the way we hide it. I asked Mensa for an idea. I had just told her I had some corner shelves. She said, do a piece about corners. Oh, sorry. My art teacher claimed the biggest discovery of my life was that corners pick up dirt. I just want to sit and absorb dirt, just like a corner. And then on the side, it says, dirt is meant non-pejoratively. It is life as it is. Mensa ha has been a tremendous influence on my practice. She spent much time in Japan and other lifetimes and understands so much through and beyond her pottery, gardening, and Japanese tea ceremonies. I give my mind numerous jobs that don't need to be done. Not long ago, I heard a podcast by a neuropsychologist about how the main function of the mind is to regulate the body. Yet I give it the job of protecting my sensitive self by creating one story after another. It tries to tell me that it, is more that it has a more important job to do, especially when at the end of the day, I'm so tired. It is like the Texas power companies. Do they wanna keep everything running on a cold winter day or do they wanna make sure everyone likes the marshmallows in their hot chocolate? Maybe I get sick or distressed or unhappy when I'm not allowing my body to be regulated. In the course of the intensive, I wondered how many stories I have created, maybe more than the grains of sand on the Ganges, a Buddhist expression of a very large number. So I kept thinking that I am my mind. Then I saw my sister pass away and realized that she wasn't her body, nor was she her mind, yet something is still there. It was just that her cell phone battery had lost its charge. I forgot to put the death of my two sisters, my parents and my grandparents on the timeline and the Dharma activity we did the other day. In a way, they have not died, or maybe I'm still in denial. My daughter recommended we stay there when my mom died. My mom told me on her deathbed that she'd always be with me. Be serious, mom, I told her. Oh. <laughs> um, Siri just said to me, be serious. Just heard that. I wanted to tell her, be serious, mom, and you'll die. And I'll, and I'll be an orphan or something, or at least a kid without a mom but I kept my mouth shut and soon realized she was right. Moms really don't die. The rectangle on the left is the last shape to be made. The brush is running out of ink. It is solid, 
yet it is not part of my body and mind. It is Buddha nature. It is my original face. It is my beginner's mind. Notice how the ink is almost gone. It is solid conceptually and yet seems ethereal. And you can see where the brush start, start, starts in the upper left and then comes down and then goes across and how it kind of drags in the paper and it's running out of ink in the middle. It's a pretty exciting little trip there. My rectangle is the one I engage when I make artworks. It is solid like a love meteor whirling through space. It is what I am when I empty my mind. My parents shielded me from death, literally. Our neighbor at our summer home died. I found a newspaper clipping about it in my sister's desk drawer. I wasn't attached to Rube, but it was, so it wasn't a big deal. But when I asked my mom why she didn't tell me, she repeated the refrain that I should just pay attention to my schoolwork. No wonder I wrote poem after poem in high school about death. I don't think I was depressed. I was just confused. They say that Zen is about preparing us for death. I suspect that is why I decided to delve into Judaism or Buddhism when I retired. My father had recently died and he taught us so much as he bravely passed on. His last words were, now I can be with Pauline. Pauline was my mother, whom he loved so dearly. Yet I suspect on her instructions, he refused to show us that he was mourning and scolded me when I shed a tear for my mother. He lost his father when he was two and his mother tore her clothes off, as was traditional for Jews to do in the old country. That was all the trauma he could endure or that he would let his kids endure. My first intensive, probably around 2008, was at a Buddhist monastery in St. Louis. It was in a house like Apamata and the intensive was on the topic of mindfulness. At the break, I asked a monk if one could both be present and recall the past. He went on and on for about an hour or so it seemed. I understood nothing of what he said, except yes, one can be in the present and think about the past. And Peg said something um, yesterday, I think, about there is more besides this moment. And I, I've also thought that it's great that, that most of us, you know, still have our memories because this moment encapsulated in this moment is the past, the present and the future. So, but we can be present to it or we can go off there. I'm similarly baffled by the idea of being time even though it is, my, it is my second intensive on the topic and I've been reading the book. I mentioned that to Robin and she spoke about how she was not figuring it out, but rather feeling it in her body. I keep coming back to love, remembering reading Eric Fromm's The Art of Loving over 50 years ago. 
my mind was not able to see love in its various iterations, but my mind was able to see love in its various iterations, but I hadn't really experienced love at that point. It wasn't that I was unloved, but rather that love didn't penetrate into me. When I started to do that, I got it. That is how I'm now seeing time. It is undeniable. And as I move through time and recalling all my many milestones, like flushing down the sleeping pills, I feel time in my body. My life has been one continuous collection of times that got me here. Dogen called it one mistake after another. Driving Mensa to her COVID shot, I realized how much this time travel to my spiritual roots was affecting my body. I was now five years old, taking apart a clock on the stairs of our apartment building. Every bone in my body remembered my fun with the disassembling of the clock. I love to disassemble. Mom gave me broken things to take apart. It wasn't broke. If it wasn't broke, I didn't want it. And then on the bottom it says, each moment moves from this time to the next, Dogen. What, what's kind of funny to me is that the screwdriver that I'm holding looks more like the uh, needle that gave us the vaccines last week, this week. I was supposed to be the recipient of anything broken. Both of my parents were also repairers. My dad fixed legal problems from parking tickets to murder. Because he was from Beirut and spoke Arabic, he would help many immigrants start businesses, get married and have families. Kind of neat that they would bring their prospective wives to him for approval. He loved this work. This was his fun in life, besides his weekly tennis game. My mom was trained as a psychiatric social worker and thought she could fix everyone. But actually, I wasn't very successful nor interested in fixing things. I just wanted to see the insides to see how they worked. I did want to fix my speech. People couldn't understand me. That is no one but my neighbor friend who would tell my neighbors what I was saying. My dad told me about the pebbles of Demosthenes who treated a speech impediment by shouting to the ocean with pebbles in his mouth. Everyone else in my family were talkers. In fact, I was unable to enter a group conversation for many years, including for about 10 years as a college professor. It was like jumping onto a merry-go-round. When do you jump? And then you sometimes jump at the wrong time and you realize you made a mistake. My current practice edge is that extra that I add to my mistakes that occur with such great, great rapidity. My love of koans is part of that interest in discovering how things work and what they mean. Yet what I've learned both from Judaism and Zen is I don't get to the truth when I disassemble, but rather get to more questions. I learned the other day that in Hasidic Judaism, a wise man is considered a heretic because his understanding would take him away from his spiritual practice. 
I need to keep reminding myself that I don't know. There's always more to the stories about, but allowing people to take off their masks at HGV. And by the way, he's now changed it and you have to wear your mask or any of the thousands of stories that we so quickly make a judgment about. More and more, I tell myself, I don't know. My mom told me I should meditate. I guess there was some yoga teacher in the clubhouse where they lived who taught my mom how to do it. All I remember is you put your thumbs and forefingers together and close your eyes. I'm not sure if I just watched her or if I tried it, but if I did, it didn't take. This was done for Ken Brown in um, 2008, one of my students from the 70s. I'm still in contact with them. And we both post our artworks daily, maybe sometimes competing in a friendly rap battle. So he asked me if Buddhism was a lot of work, lots of work, and I answered much less than suffering. Here's Ken's work that he recently posted. He lives in Germany. I've only seen him in person once in 40 years, but he, like others in my art sangha, keeps me going. We take this meditation business very seriously. We bow to the cushion, we bow to the room, we rotate our bodies clockwise, we try not to move, we try not to try not, we just sit. In a sense, sometimes I felt that someone was holding a gun to our heads. If we do it right, we are unnoticed. If we cough or move or do some other cardinal sin, we think everyone is judging us. Once, not at Apamata, I was yelled at for moving a Zabaton with my foot. Another time, not at Apamata, I was rudely criticized for having my feet point toward the monk speaking. We go into a different world and quickly learn the different practices. It is odd that I would fall into so many practices that had such forms. I had a photography teacher who would tell us that a 64th of an inch on the edge of a photo makes a great difference. At this point, that was the best thing I learned in college. Flint asks us, how simple do we want it to be? And yet, I don't keep it simple. Just like the rest of our lives, I sometimes make it into a federal case. And then I scold myself because I made it into a federal case. Last week, I wrote Peg and Flint a series of text messages about how something was impossible to do. They never responded. Later in the day, I discovered that the messages never left my computer. Or so I assumed. <laughs> Sometimes my sitting starts to resemble my life. It isn't fun, it isn't even relaxing. My body ends up just as agitated as when I first sat down. I wrote that early in the uh, intensive and it was interesting that, um, you know, what we, I think all of us notice in any intensive is how our body does um, quiet down as the days progress. Today, I tried to relax. I didn't try to sit right, I just relaxed. I. And even that thought 
um, has gone away. I felt this peacefulness wash over me. It had the feeling of being with someone you love and not needing to say anything. As Rilke wrote this beautiful line, you had been there before again and again. His words were again and again. The whole poem had many times again and again with each breath. In a world plagued with not one but many plagues, this seems so important. We make a space of peace and quiet where love can germinate. You start breathing deeper. You start loving life. You start laughing. I broke a fiber optic cable the other day, so I cut it off the end and put it back in the modem. It didn't work at all. <laughs> Later in the day, I remembered the cables have to be polished. I finally watched a YouTube to see that it was a pretty complex process using three grades of polishing cloths. Then my wife and I started laughing at how stupid I was. It is times like this when I jokingly tell her that she should have married someone smarter who knew how to polish glass cables. Luckily, our internet provider came just in time for my evening class and got things working without blinking his eye. That's what I was able to, that's what I want to be able to do on the cushion, polish without battling an eye. I was five. I came home and our carpet was rolled up in the hallway of our apartment building. I asked my mom, what was she up to? We are moving, she said. This is my second memory. And I wrote in permanent. I'm remembering when I was five. I don't remember having any friends. I was driven to school a long distance and then driven home. My sisters had lots of friends. One day I came home and our carpets were in the hallway ready to be moved to our first house. My life was going to change. I was confused. I had a lot of allergies as a kid and it seemed my nose was always running. I've been thinking about that in regards to school being so difficult and also in terms of the clarity upon which I saw things. I guess I was pretty miserable with my nose running, growing up in a family that was very verbal and remembering how I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Anxious about parents who were frantic that I wouldn't get an education. So fast forward to when I'm 15, or so, and my friend Bruce asked me to go to church with him. My friends were, my parents were devout atheists. They believed that religion, as Biden said about Governor Abbott's non-mask edict, was for Neanderthals. They believed that every problem could be solved with rational thinking or, from my mom's view, psychoanalysis. Everything we did was an expression of our unconscious. We didn't need religion. And my father, growing up in an anti-Semitic world, believed that his family would be best growing up non-denominational. In fact, he saved my niece's mixed marriage by giving a speech about how intermarriages were the solution to bigotry and racism. I asked my mom if I could go to church with Bruce. She said, no, you are too impressionable. By the next week, I went to six churches on Easter Sunday. And um, I went to a therapist in, uh, as a freshman in college. And he said, remember, you're, you're your own best expert. And I said, you don't know my mom. What's funny is, as I just said that, 
um, I was going to say, and he said, your mom is your own best expert. So anyway, that's still a, um, we don't change much, I guess. So my mom told me I couldn't go to church. By the next week, I was going to six churches. Intellectually, I wanted to know how people could believe in the foolish idea of God. But I loved the feeling I had in a beautiful, solemn church. This goes back to what Robin said, where there's this feeling in your body about, about it. And I can still remember that feeling I had in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church with the service in Latin was so much out of this world. It was a hand on my heart, as David talked about uh, one of the first days. But I ended up going to more liberal churches where the talks were more interesting. As a senior, I joined a University of Chicago Baptist youth group. I mentioned the University of Chicago because this particular church was kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. The assistant minister who led our group said, you believe in God if you've heard the word God or something like that. But it is now almost 36 years later, I see God as a metaphor that we use to talk about certain things. Our life as it is might be seen as God's creation, but really for me, we never know the answers to any of these great questions. I got a job at a summer Baptist camp. It was mainly as a dishwasher, or at least I remember how hot the water was and not much else. The campers were from a Baptist children's home. During my breaks, I would question them about God. They were true believers, and I asked them if they ever considered that they might have been sold a bill of goods. I grew up believing that right speech was telling the truth. Now I've learned it is far more nuanced. Oh, finally, the camp leaders asked me if I really wanted to stay the next week at the camp. I said no. This was uh, just done about a year ago, and it was my impression of inside the grass hut. But it was also this impression, I know we had practice discussion with Peg, and I was talking about being in a room and there being not being able to find the door. So it's, it's a combination of the grass hut and, and that. I'm in a grass hut without doors or windows. In one corner is a meditation zafu. I'm hunched over in the opposite corner. I'm feeling lots of, of stress. I'm feeling sorry for myself. I don't, I think about getting out, but barely know what that means since I've been in my whole, in, in my whole, I've been in my whole life. Somewhere in this hut might be an opportunity for an exit, like a door or a window, but where? I scan in all 10 directions. I see nada with no alternatives. I go and sit upright as Buddha on the cushion facing the wall. It is cold and my breath is making clouds on the wall. Maybe I could make a cloud door or a window, just maybe. That is from exactly one year ago, my rewrite of Inside the Grass Hut. I'm taking a course now in the Grass Hut and our assignment for Wednesday is to do a rewrite of the grass hut, so it'll be fun to do it again. I sense that my isolation was my initial reaction to the quarantine. 
But before that, I sensed I was in a room I couldn't escape. There wasn't even a door. I was surprised seeing nada and thinking I was trapped. Now I feel that I wasn't trapped at all, but everywhere, not inside or outside. Um, a former student of mine was in prison for much of the years. He just has been released. And um, it was interesting to think about his state as opposed to a monk in a monastery or a man in the grass hut and to compare those two existences. But anyway, he's doing fine now. Maybe the you can't go back is about not being able to leave the hut because the hut is boundless. So even though the hut was 10 feet square, it's the whole world. Art has been my salvation from the time I started making photos at 12 and fortunately had a wonderful teacher who encouraged me both in photography and drawing for many years. I finally was able to speak. Then in college, I had a few other fine teachers who actually taught more by example than discourse. But many of them, though they were fine artists, didn't do a great job taking care of the rest of their lives. I think my desire for exploring Judaism or Buddhism was having an inkling that just making pictures wasn't enough. In fact, one of them used to say, take care of your life and your art will take care of itself, which was a, a, a koan for me because I thought I could just do art, just do art, just do art, forget about life. And, um, There's two other times I came across that same saying. One was in a book on, on, uh, from an old English gardener, and he said, take care of the edges and the center will take care of itself. And the other was by um, a Lois uh, Senefelder who invented lithography. And he said, when grinding one stone on top of the other, you take care of the edges and the center will take care of itself. So I've kept running into that, that uh, saying. There had to be something behind the pictures. And then I did this um, a day or two ago. When it rains Dharma, I sweat Dharma. I can't stop the rain. All I can do is spread it out so it isn't so thick. Friday, I was sweating Dharma. Saturday, I was swimming in Dharma. Right now, we are all swimming in the cloud but the place really doesn't matter, does it? So do can we do questions, comments? Okay, so, uh, Richie, can you unmute people or let them unmute themselves? Someone raises their hand, then you'll know. Uh, Joel, you and then uh, Melody. But you have to unmute. 
Kim, you just described a childhood of a lot of struggle, uh, a lot of difficulty <clears throat> and um, things that would mark that that if I had lived them, I think would would have marked me with a lot of fear. And I want to know how you got to be so generous. How you got to be what was it art? Was it poetry? Was it well, the generous I, I, that, that made you I'm sorry, that, that made you willing to give so much of your time and and to offer yourself over and over again. That's my question. Well, the generous, the first thought that came to my mind is I really don't think see myself as separate from others, you know, for, you know, all my life. And I had I was surrounded by people who were so generous. You know, my parents, my sisters. Uh, so I think that was a big part of it. So I don't even see myself as generous. I just see things that need to be done. So. Um, uh, my mother's friend's son was in the hospital. And she lived in the suburbs and we lived right near the hospital. And every day he didn't like the hospital food. And every day he brought she brought him. Uh, steaks and milkshakes. And then another cousin uh, needed better, med better medical care. So he lived at our house for six months. You know, we took care of him and she took him every day to see doctors, that kind of thing. So they were always helping people. And what's funny too about their generosity is they never donated to charity, but they were constantly helping people. They never donated money. Yeah, uh, so it was interesting, but uh, oh, but then there's another thing you 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 touched, and that is um, my childhood, and um, I was incredibly privileged in many ways, and there was never I could get anything I wanted if I could convince them that that I needed it. There was always that question my dad asked, "Well, do you just want it or do you need it?" My sister would say, Dad, I need I need uh, money for string for physics class. She'd go and buy cigarettes, of course, but you know, that was funny. But um, then when I was teaching at a community college in Ferguson, Missouri, a kid couldn't get money for a roll of film. And we were actually bulk loading film and selling it to the students for 60 cents a roll or something. And and. Uh, so, so I was privileged in that way, but then not, you know, not in terms of other ways. So, and and that's all a gift in the end, right? Yes, Joe. I just I want to add one thing. Curiously, while I was driving to Appamata this morning, I turned on the car radio, and there was, uh, uh, the the show with Krista Tippett, and she was interviewing. Naomi Shehab Nye, who grew up in Ferguson, Missouri. Oh, I didn't know that. Indeed, and she talked about it quite a bit. Yeah, I didn't and, know that. And she and and Krista Tippett read the poem of hers about kindness and the the relationship between kindness and fear. That oh, I would mess it up by by trying to repeat it, but but it's, I'll look at that. Okay. A, a curious echo 
from this morning. Thank you. And Melody. Uh, Melody? Yes. Oh, okay. I am very impressed with your uh, story, your background, rich background. Oh, my God. You have had lots of good experiences and uh, dedication and input. And it just reminds me of what, you know, my knowledge is from the nervous system, the brain, you know, the right brain, the left brain, and the, um, the left, which is more the reality oriented thinking, logic, language. And the, the left is the art the uh, feelings, you know, all the other decision-making and coming, you know, the, the triangle there you're talking about, that it was so interesting, the art, and your interest in art, which to me is the strong influence and the capacity of your right hemisphere. And I am referring to one of the important books in my life, you know, that uh, Gilchrist, a neuropsychologist and the, uh, you know, professor in England. Anyway, uh, I'm bringing this up because Flint is here and all the other friends. And then I brought that up also yesterday when Robin was in our small group. And my sort of a thinking and understanding is that the left looks at the reality at whatness of the reality. And there is maybe one whatness, but then the right impression and, you know, making it of that whatness is howness. You are in the art and then you're towards one whatness can be different hownesses. You see different one thing or one reality, one childhood as different howness. You are seeking, you are a seeker. But to me, I think you, this is not unusual. This unity is there. You are just seeing it or, you know, I'm, I'm just saying you, it could be me, everyone. You are in that howness status which you are wondering whether how much is correct to the whatness or uni this unity is, the unity is there. The mind is having all these together. I don't know. This is the way I think. And I can just sort of be, put myself into that frame of work, frame of mind, you know, my mind and let and enjoy the howness and then explore the whatness at the same time. Well, I have to work on that. How and what? And I have a good resource for you. <laughs> Maybe Flint or others are, this is Mac Gilchrist, 2006. The, it, the, the title is what? The Master? The Master and the, Emissary, his emissary. Oh, emissary, okay. The master and his emissary, yeah. Emissary, master is the right. Thank you. Anyway, two cents.
Do you see Robin's hand? I don't. Yeah, Robin's got a hand up. Whose hand? There, Robin. Um, it was, uh, thank you for mentioning me um, a number of times in your talk and it makes me think that maybe there was something that I said about the body that was useful to you. But um, what I want to express is my gratitude to see the photographs. I wish that everyone could carry around a little PowerPoint that had, I don't know, some key people and moments of their life with beautiful and interesting art because um, seeing the photo of your dad and your mom and then um, seeing your sister Gail, who I felt like, you know, I, I, through you, I got to know just the tiniest sliver of, but certainly your love for her, your affection for her and your deep respect for her intellect and caring. Um, it just, all of that wove a picture of, um, I don't know, in some ways its own song, I guess, you know, called a family. And um, yeah, I didn't have a question. I suppose my real question is about um, something around how Zen and your art making um, are sort of expressed through you because you, it's a daily practice for both things and they, um, they are constantly in communication with one another. But the fact is, I'm less interested in the sort of, you know, intellectual response, which your family was so good at, and which you two are really good at, and more in just continuing to observe and learn from you as you share your art and your experience of sitting and being head student. Thank you. Oh, Lori. But if you unmute, it will help. There. I just uh, wanted to say how much I en enjoyed that Dharma talk and- No, no, no. Way thinking mind. Oh, talk. it wasn't. It wasn't. You're right. I'm sorry. Um, how much I enjoyed the way thinking mind talk. And it's so, you, you know, is a wonderful, such a wonderful expression of you in all, in all ways. And um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. I think I've seen some of those pictures. Um, yeah, well, they've been on my whatever. Yeah. Um, so I loved hearing the stories behind them. And thank you so much. It's so, so for coming forth, totally you, as if you had any choice. <laughs> And I, I probably would have, I was just told about that I was doing this a week ago. So, but if I had been told a month ago, I would have spent a month on it. <laughs> and the, the, the problem would have been too, that I wouldn't have integrated it with the intensive. So it somehow, um, you know, it, may, it kind of added a layer of difficulty to the intensive, which was very positive. <laughs> I see Peg kind of smiling. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Jess. Hi, Kim. 
Hi. So I was thinking about what I know of you and I'm always amazed at your dedication. I've seen you whenever I show up to Apamana, I always see you. I mean, you're always there, present, you're engaged in a lot of different ways. A lot of ways I don't see you. You know, a lot of times where I don't see you, you're just very, that's my perception or story is that just very dedicated. And I'm curious to hear when I ask this question, just kind of what comes up for you in this present moment when you hear the question, what drives you in your practice? Well, as, as you were talking, what came to my mind was um, my mother saw my dedication to whatever I was doing as a problem. And she would say that she, she told me later that she would hide things. I would have like a hobby and then I would get so into it that she would hide it. So I'd go to something else. But uh, what drives me? Um, I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, you know, I don't see myself as, okay, so I'm being honest. I don't see myself as very disciplined. Um, some artists, you know, can, can work like one day and then not the next day, or even with food, they can, some people can um, limit their eating. Like I had a friend who in the middle of a meal, in the middle of almost like a bite, she would put down her fork, leave the food on the plate, and that would be it. And I need, uh, I need rules. I need um, like a practice. It, I tried, uh, Flint gave me the challenge of not sitting. And, and I, I tried that and it, it just really messed with my mind. So, um, so I, I guess it's kind of an addictive type personality where, or, or something. I know that when I have a practice, um, in fact, I had a practice of not eating sugar cookies or not eating cookies or not eating sweets. And someone who I really loved gave me a sugar cookie and it threw me off for a year. So, you know, you know in terms of this practice that I had. So, so I really need to um, either do something every day or not do it. I'm kind of that way and, and um, maybe, uh, maybe I'll change when I get older. <laughs> well, thanks for being honest. Yes, Daniela. Hi, Kim. Hi. I just wanted to thank you for your teaching first. I so um, appreciate, like um, Lori mentioned, the, the honesty. I don't know you. I've never seen you in person. I have only met you through these online retreats that I think are such a silver lining in the COVID situation. I'm just so grateful that we can come together in this way. Um, and I just felt like it was such a reminder for me hearing you talk about all the richness that all of us bring with us, but I would never have known anything, any of this richness. I would never have seen it if I hadn't had the chance to listen to you. I would not have had this opportunity to learn from you. 
um, and about how much of teachers we can be for each other if given the chance uh, to be that. So, um, so I wanted to say thank you. I also wanted to, um, and just for, yes, for the, for the frankness and the fearlessness with which you talk about who you are. And I think that's, to me, this is practice. To me, you're living practice, like you said, with the Dharma rain and you're spreading it. <laughs> and, uh, and I very much, very much appreciate that. And I have to um, sign off and be with my family a little bit on oh, Sunday. Oh, enjoy them. Um, and so I wanted to thank both uh, Flint and Peg and all the moderators from, you know, who are staying up late and making sure like Maria and, uh, <laughs> and Richie and everyone else, you know, that we run the way we should. And, um, and it's been just such a wonderful time together. Um, I feel like these are my people. This is my community when I meet with you. And um, I know I'll miss you. Usually there is something for me to kind of lessen the pain, which is like a, um, an inquiry on the Monday after. And this week there isn't. And I will really miss it. I need an opportunity to meet with people after the retreat is over so that I don't grieve that it's over um, so much, but I'll manage, I'm sure. Yeah, and you can come to our, you know, every morning we're meditating at 6.30. Yes, maybe if I can, uh, yeah. if my body and if you don't up. come at 6.30, you can come at 7, yes. 7.05, yeah. But I wanted to thank everyone for their, for their generosity and for their presence and, and to say goodbye for now. Should we, Flint and Peg, should we kind of move this now toward where people could talk about the intensive? Peg, you're uh, muted, but. Sure, I think that's fine. I think that would be very helpful. Okay. We can spend a few moments with people reflecting briefly before we move to the ceremony. If anyone has anything they'd like to say, just raise your hand and we'll um, give you a moment to um, reflect on the week or anything that uh, is um, you'd like to offer. And whoever goes first gets a free toaster. Oh, Maria. And I want my free toaster. <laughs> I was just going to say. I didn't say when. <laughs> I, I played that trick with my kids all the time. Okay. Yeah, well, that was first. Firstly, that was wonderful, Kim. That was such a nourishing. Ex I felt it so experientially. It was just wonderful to just sit back and really sort of take it in. And, and I will watch it again to take in more layers. There was lots of layers in there. So thank you so much for that. And and as far as the retreat, I feel like I'm at that point where I am in Sheldon. The UK retreat where we've come to the end of the retreat and I feel everything I feel in my body that I would if I'd been with you all in in I say real life if you know what I mean physically with with you all and I bought some um I've, I've, I've missed Josh's cooking though you know I, I bought some kale so I could crunch it up and I bought some apples and and made some gluten-free apple crumble that he always makes on the retreat and I've sort of prepared things so that it's it's kind of got some of the physical retreat in, in it and walking into this room 
with my you know the first foot nearest the altar and just trying to kind of bring in as much of the physicality of the retreat and it's really has felt so wonderful and and my body's got that that kind of nice relaxed exhaustion that that i get after an an intensive so i know it's really been as if i'm there as if i'm with you all it's it's and i just want to thank you all for that it's it's incredible how how it's felt so physical and real to me and i want to thank you for that opportunity it's just been wonderful well i want to thank all the monitors just did such an incredible job and made it all work it was just so beautiful um and i think this is a, a surprise to all of us that it can work Lori, you're muted. Hello, here I am. Um, yeah, so in terms of the retreat, I thought it was absolutely lovely and um, Oh, you're muted again, Lori. So I don't know what you heard. Anyway, in terms of the retreat, it was lovely, something like that. Okay. And so um, I was just mentioning that the W. Oh, you're, you're muted again. Could be the space bar. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm unmuted, but we'll see how long it lasts. Okay. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that I thought that the double inquiry was just really lovely and it was a great addition and i'm so happy that we that you were able to do that for us i thought that was a tremendous learning opportunity and um i i, I dare say I, I liked it as much or better as the individual because you, you get so much out of what other people um, are working with and so forth so thank you so much for that Maybe people could just raise their hand if they if they really like the the form of the inquiry as opposed to the individual inquiry. I really liked it so much. I, I felt a little bit cheated, you know, where people would go off with Peg or Flint in the past and have these discussions and you wouldn't know what was going on. Um, I would I would feel a little bit sorry, and, you know. And then, between inquiries, between intensives, we do have opportunities to meet with them, so individually. Yes, uh, Stephanie, you're muted, or are you raising your hand? Hi. Yeah, um, I wanted to say first of all uh, how much I appreciated. Um, getting to be in practice with you, Kim, over the past several years, you have been a tremendous, tremendous um, help and impact on my own practice um, and a role model. So I want to say thank you for that. And uh, this intensive has been just that, intense, uh, very intense. But it's also been <clears throat> a good learning experience that intention to practice doesn't have to look a certain way 
that as long as you have that intention to practice and you're surrounded by people who support that intention, um, it happens and it happens wonderfully. So I, this has been a very good um, intention uh, intensive. And I, I wanted to say also, as other people did, how much I appreciate yours and uh, Maria's and Nancy and Richie's um, willingness to put so much time and effort into being monitors. It, you guys rock. You and Nancy, and Na Nancy is here too. Yeah, I thought I said Nancy. Yes, definitely. Okay. Nancy, Richie, Maria, and you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Ellen. Kim, I'm so happy to see you there becoming the head student. And uh, I love being Dharma buddies together. And um, I love your mind. <laughs> your mind is so interesting. Um, and to go along with it is uh, your kindness. What a combo. <laughs> Well, I, I really enjoy you a lot and learn a lot. And I enjoy you too. And uh, I want to double down uh, about inquiry. I've not been a fan of inquiry. Uh, and that was that has been a really great experience. Um, I, I will start going to Tuesday inquiry now. Uh, I really appreciated um, the authentic authenticity everyone brought. Uh, each of, of the participants brought and uh, the responses from the teachers were so instructive. So well, I, I think I mentioned this before, but um, you know, of the 70 people who come to Flint's inquiry, it's, it's the same small group of people who keep coming up to talk to him. And I'm hoping because we've had this experience now, we'll be braver about coming up if we haven't. I have a better a better understanding of it now, I think, than I did before. So uh, thanks to everybody. It's been it's been a great experience. And uh, I loved your I loved your talk, Kim. Well, thank you. Uh, Shashi's Shashi's had a hand up for a while. Thank you, Maria. Um, yes, I just wanted to thank Flint and um, Peg and um, everyone, each one of you for sharing. And it has been really, really uh, helpful. And my, my understanding of inquiry has also changed uh, after this uh, intensive. Um, I've, I realize now that how we have, we each have, certain things in common and to learn to listen from others, it just makes um, like, it, it makes you not feel so alone, like uh, that, you know, this thing only happened to me or um, I don't think it can happen to anyone else. So it was really, really nice to, to, um, to listen to everyone and so thank you, Kim, for all that you do and your presentation. Um, and I wanna, I just needed to say goodbye because I have a commitment with family also. 
that I need to tend to. So sorry, I won't be able to be here for the rest of the, the session, but um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you all so much. Yes, as everyone arrives, uh, if we were in the Zindo, I would be making sure that everyone was present and seated. And then actually, um, I would ask them to stand, uh, which you needn't do. Uh, it just means everyone is present for the arrival of the teachers and <clears throat> the person who's being invited to be the head student. There's also another person involved, um, a senior student uh, who will be part of the ceremony as well and will be a person who will be asking uh, questions. So it looks like we're at our proper time. And we'll each offer incense in order. This is the opening of the 2021 spring practice period at Appamata. Through the deep consideration of our teachers and this Sangha, we offer you, Kim Mosley, the responsibility of head student for the practice period. Kim. You are our choice to be head student. Please lead us and accept this responsibility. We give you our full support.
this is too great of a responsibility. Please come into the Zento now. And you'll be addressing me. You ready, Kim? I have taken Buddhist precepts. <clears throat> I have, I thank you for your teaching. And I am not ready yet to be a head student. Please wait, please stop, return, come closer. Good to see you. I felt um, a sadness at your leaving because I know from your talk that it's easy. I know that I seek out people as a teacher who I can see take things further than I'm able to take them. And I want to spend time with them. And I see that in you. Please offer yourself in this way so that I don't lose you. Please address Peg. I have taken Buddhist precepts. I thank you for the teaching. I do not feel I'm ready yet to be head student. Kim Wade, come back. <clears throat> In so many ways, you've been the head student for years and years now, taking on everything from hanging a picture to teaching new people how to be AV monitor, giving talks, being present. It's consistent. Your practice is very stable and very deep, and it's inspired so many people. And I'm delighted that you're going to have this opportunity to be a friend to the students in the Sangha through your inspiring example. But I'm especially touched by your deep kindness for me and your support. And it has meant so much to me to know that that support is there and to have our warm friendship um, in addition to our Dharma connection, as spiritual friends. It's such a delight, um, as Ellen said, to be uh, a kind of um, participant in your mind and to see 
all the many, many creative ways you have of using it and of expressing the Dharma. So please, please accept this role as head student. This is a beautiful day. I hope that you continue in good health. I want to help you care for our practice. I echo that in my request that you please help us. And I'll say to everyone witnessing, this student shares our seats and our responsibilities. Please offer him your whole hearted support. At this point, and if we were in the Zindo, those three bows with this teachers and the head student would be followed by what's called a Jundo, J-U-N-D-O. And everyone would uh, be standing in a gasho. And as the assistant, the, the Jisha and would lead the head student and they would walk bent over like they were bowing and they would walk around the zindo and as they passed each person would bow in turn like a wave of bows so let's just do one bow all together now to indicate that jundo and now kim is passing The head student for this practice period is Kim Mosley. Thank you everyone for the, their participation in this small but beautiful and I would say impactful ceremony having been in it myself. The, I see the smiles on everyone's faces. The practice period will last into June and we'll have a short intensive and the head student exit ceremony. Uh, and that's a little bit more elaborated and, uh, and a little bit more public. And so this will conclude the end of uh, this intensive. Thank you everyone for your participation. Thank you so, so much. We're, we're blessed to have uh, the students and, and friends like you. And please continue your wholehearted practice.
Absolutely.